afternoon. Hope everybody had a good lunch with Paris Hilton. While Paris Hilton was taking pictures with the paparazzi, this team you see here was talking about how many SPACs they'd been managing to get going during the pandemic. So it's a different dynamic and it's just great to be here with this amazing panel today. We'll talk about um, the focus of the end game, but we'll also be talking about what is going on in raising capital also at the beginning of the game across the spectrum of the financial landscape. And the panel has, of course, a lot to say based on their experience and also what's going on in the financial markets today. To my immediate left is Mikhail Katz, head of investment and corporate banking at Mizuho Americas. Then we have Bob Diamond, founding partner and CEO of Atlas Merchant Capital. And then of course, Betsy Cohen, the most experienced member of our team and chair of FinTech Masala with many, uh, many SPACs and, and other achievements behind her, of course. So to begin the discussion, we'll go ahead and uh, turn to Mikhail first. Uh, what's the macro situation for deal-making in your mind today and capital raising, Mikhail? Thanks, Janet. So maybe starting um, on the macro side of things, um, the economic recovery is in a very solid footing. When you take a look at the balance sheet of the consumer and corporations, uh, incredibly healthy. Consumers have been delevering during the pandemic, saving money. We have uh, low delinquency rates and low household debt uh, service burden. Similarly for corporations sitting on troves of cash, delevering, and we've been looking at the earnings over the last couple of quarters and uh, seeing that 70% of corporations, even north of that, have beat uh, earnings. Um, also interesting to see that so many corporations now are giving guidance, again, demonstrating confidence in where they believe their businesses are going. Uh, and banks similarly are incredibly well capitalized. And um, none of us can uh, forget the fact that this economy is very much supported by fiscal stimulus. And so you take all these factors together and look at where the equity markets are today, uh, near all highs, low volatility, um, really bringing together a certain degree of confidence uh, among management teams, boards, and investors um, to pursue deal-making activity. And that's exactly what we've been seeing across capital markets as well as M&A. Great. Bob, how about a little bit of the macro view on what we're seeing in raising capital today? So <clears throat> when I think about that, I start with, um, you know, kind of what does the financial services space look like today relative to kind of prior to 2008? And prior to the financial crisis, banks for decades were becoming more global and more universal. And I think it's a stark contrast today, and it's creating huge opportunities. So I want to kind of paint the picture a little bit. But kind of the conclusion is that the legacy banks the larger national banks here in the US, UK, Europe, really across the piece, are much more, much more like utilities today than they had been previously. And if you think about that, it starts with the regulatory reaction to the financial crisis. The primary reaction was buffer upon buffer upon buffer of capital. So make the banks safe, ensure no more systemic risk. 
I think the irony is that if you look at the large national banks here in the US, in the UK, in Europe, really, again, across the piece, they're actually larger than prior to the crisis. Uh, but worryingly, um, there's more concentration of risk. There's more concentration um, uh, of business. So um, while they are safe, um, uh, they're much more like utilities. And, and we see it. We see they're regulated more like utilities. They're managed more like utilities. <clears throat> they recruit staff more like utilities. And most importantly, the investors treat them more like utilities in, in terms of the returns. And what that's meant is that there's just a phenomenal opportunity for competition that is more agile, um, more mobile, more reactive, and that's come from specialist firms. It can be specialist lending firms or advisory firms. Uh, it could be specialists that are national or regional competing just in one area. And I think uh, the, the, the strongest implication has been on technology. And when you, when you add all that up to what it means, number one, prior to 2008, about 95% of the market cap of financial services was the large national banks. Today, it's just under 70%. And I think we're just beginning in terms of, um, you know, we've seen for a while, Apple and PayPal and others kind of steal the march on technology around consumer payments. But it's just at the early stages with uh, the commercial banking activities of treasury, transaction services, digital currencies, Bitcoin, stablecoin. Um, the, the impact of all that has been quite dramatic. So um, all in all, I think it makes for a fascinating investment environment because, because, of that, because of that change. Thank you. And Betsy, could you speak a bit for, about what you see as the, the newest factors or dynamics driving change in, in capital raising and financial services, be they technological or other types of disruption that you're seeing? Uh, I think that there's an opportunity for and a recognition that uh, the kind of disbursement that Bob was talking about, uh, which is a result of uh, a reaction to the risk, uh, is really an opportunity for uh, the diversification of, the, of services that we see occurring uh, as, at this moment. I think it was an evolution which followed several trajectories. One was uh, the acceptance of, uh, uh, of technology as a, a real thing. And secondly, the uh, consumer and small business adoption, which was a curve that needed to uh, be uh, followed and increased uh, before there could be a real marketplace. So I think that's what I would add to what Bob was saying. Mm -hmm. And in terms of uh, where we are today and what you might see as coming up next, um, could you speak, um, each of you, a little bit to either the opportunities first or the risks that you're seeing? Betsy already out some of the, the growth opportunity or change. Is there opportunity? Yeah, mm -hmm. there's continuing opportunity uh, to both uh, on distributive platforms, both to uh, create 
greater certainty around execution of financial transactions which themselves are dispersed uh, and to uh, gather, and I think one of the great trends today is the importance of the gathering of data and the uh, refiguring of that data and uh, making it more useful uh, and therefore uh, more productive and more profitable. Mm -hmm. Barbara Mihal, could you speak to maybe opportunities within like specific areas such as LDOs, M&As, SPACs, anything like that that you're seeing as a particular there, there are risks and opportunities. I'll start with one risk that I think is, is interesting. We kind of face it day to day now. We have invested in a number of you know, smaller broker dealers that compete with the larger banks. And you know, that concentration that's happening, if I, if I look at the retail side, four U.S. banks now have over 50% of the deposits uh, in the United States, just way too concentrated. And we're seeing that you know, the regulators are just so comfortable with size and with the large banks that they allow the sponsorship in FICC, uh, in CCP. Um, and what that means is that the, uh, the larger banks are able to net down what appears in the balance sheet while taking on 100% of the risk. And it's not obvious to investors, but to me, as an investor in financial services, it really kind of makes it tough for the challengers and the the non-large banks to compete in many of the broker-dealer areas. On the other hand, I see far more opportunity than risks. I think that's one to point out. And I think, you know, for someone who's been with non-U.S. financial institutions of Credit Suisse and Barclays for over 20 years, um, it's obvious to me, but not obvious to anyone, what a huge advantage it is to be in the U.S. where the capital markets are so deep and so rich, and the ability to execute transactions and you know, get new businesses running and, and the opportunities for, for technology in, in financial services are so different here. Uh, I was in London last week and we're, we're looking with a group of people from, from the UK at the potential for SPAC markets there. They're still futzing around with whether or not they wanna be in SPACs or not. Where the US has gone up and down, right? We've had problems in SPACs, it's retracing, it's doing this, it's doing that but we're seeing innovation at work and we're seeing a really deep capital market. You get to the UK and you see this enormous uproar at these big, bad private equity firms from the US who are taking over you know, their grocery store that's a, you know, a national jewel. And you know, my reaction, an American reaction to that would be, well, if you really care about that company, maybe you can stop crucifying the public market CEO for the compensation that he gets. So I think I, think, um, I just, um, and this is, this is be counterintuitive for a second, and sorry to go on so long, but the capital markets in the U.S. create such opportunity for investment and for growth. And every time there's a hiccup, whether it was 2008 or with SPACs now, there's a correction and a recovery as opposed to a freezing of the institutions, which you typically see more in Europe um, and in the U.K. And I just, um, I think, I think that just um, creates a much different environment. On the other hand. Let's just look at the legacy banks and take two extreme examples of JP Morgan, a very successful US bank, and Deutsche, who has struggled. Um, with all the positives for JP Morgan versus Deutsche, JP Morgan's trading close to two times book, and Deutsche is at 30% of book. And so I am also seeing some valuation discounts that have really worked into the system over time. So that was a bit scrambled, uh, but I think there's both risks and, and opportunities here, uh, Janet. 
Mm -hmm. Nicole, would you like to weigh in? Yeah, I think in terms of opportunities, one of the common threads that um, I've seen in, you know, uh, in this conference as well as the digital transformation that's appending uh, every industry and the financial sector is clearly not immune and that's powered by blockchain or artificial intelligence and other technologies which is over time have really um, lowered kind of the, uh, the price of entry, so to speak. I was looking the other day that the market cap of PayPal, which was very much in par with one of the largest US banks. So that really does support uh, Bob's argument in terms of the, the disruption. And uh, our uh, senior FinTech analyst at Mizuho said the other day that he views uh, investing in Square today to be akin to investing in JP Morgan back in 1871. Just think about the magnitude of opportunity that exists um, through this uh, digital transformation. Uh, and it's not just as you know, financial services, it's hitting uh, every sector. Tesla at 700 billion market cap is eclipsing the, the next five largest auto manufacturers. A Airbnb just debuted with 100 billion of market cap. I think that's larger than Hyatt, Hilton, and Marriott combined. And so those are some of the things that I'm watching for uh, in terms of opportunities to participate um, in the disruption. Uh, in terms of the challenges, I, I will tell you I am paying uh, very close attention to what's happening in terms of uh, regulation um, as it relates to deal activity. Um, we are definitely seeing and hearing rhetoric um, that um, federal agencies should be using their enforcement powers to uh, protect competition against uh, industries that have been consolidating. And the impact is longer M&A review periods, potentially more expensive remedies, uh, or even transactions that get abandoned. And we just saw that with a 30 billion uh, transaction between uh, Aon and Willis Tower Watson, which uh, uh, decided to walk away from uh, because of an impasse with the DOJ, and it's not the only one. There have been other transactions. So I would say these are some of the challenges or to say um, things that I'm, I'm looking for um, um, in the landscape. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up the issue of regulation. Would either any of you like to mention or describe fallout from the situation with China and, and the limitations that have have been imposed on, on Chinese firms coming public here. Is it, is it something that uh, we could see from other places or is it important in terms of technology and other capital flow movement that, that might be of concern to you? Or are you expecting it? Betsy, could you weigh in it on, on that at all? Yeah. On, on the, or, or Bob, on the, the, the role of the Chinese regulators um, effectively telling uh, their firms that they can't come public in the U.S. Yeah, I, I, I think we have to really separate out the, the depth of the capital markets from the growth opportunity, from the rate of growth uh, in the non-U.S. Uh, markets. And I, I think it's very different. If you take a look at Africa, that Bob knows well, uh, there is an opportunity because this is the first generation of the adoption of smartphones and other connectivity that provides you with uh, opportunities for growth that are potentially outsized uh, to the depth of the capital markets within the US. So I may be looking at it 
in terms of uh, a, a future opportunity as opposed to the current situation. I think that there continues to be, uh, you know, uh, an education gap, uh, but that as adoption uh, continues, uh, that will that will in fact uh, become a, a, a potentially uh, a less relevant issue. Mm -hmm. Bob, would you? You know, I I think there are a number of a number of situations where effective thoughtful regulation can be a real positive. And I think we've had many situations in the past and hopefully now. I think, you know, looking at SPACs as an opportunity, I think SPACs are definitely here to stay. Uh, I think SPACs are evolving as probably they should. Um, I think strong sponsors, we think of ourselves as a strong sponsor and I know Betsy does as well, uh, support strong regulation so that, so that we don't have, um, you know, bad behavior. Uh, but we think the evolution includes that more and more uh, of the market is going to support those with a real sex sector expertise rather than just raising money with a single name celebrity. I think it will really favor people with a platform of investment that have been in funds and other areas before, not just you know starting from scratch. And I think they're going to be much more you know they're, they're going to look at the track record. But I think I think there'll be fewer SPACs. I think we had a bit of a you know, uh, uh, a very, very healthy issuance uh, kind of in the first quarter of this year that will probably slow down. Um, and I think strong platforms with strong sector expertise and a good track record are going to welcome some regulation around around transparency here. And I think it can be a positive. Um, you know, I think in the in the digital space where I know there's a lot of controversy today and over the last few weeks about regulation and, and, and some of the things that are happening. Um, you know, our interest has been in stable coins. Uh, we recently announced the merger of our first SPAC, Concord Acquisition Corp, with Circle. And Circle is stable coin. Stable coin means people have to believe in, 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 you know, each USDC is worth a dollar today, tomorrow, every day. So we've announced that we're going to apply uh, to be a regulated bank. Um, we've changed our investments to be just cash and treasuries. And we recognize what the regulators are saying, which is if we're going to have a digital, a private sector digital alternative, it has to be so regulated and, and, and so sound um, uh, for, it to be, for it to be appropriate. And I think, you know, if you turn that on its head and if there was no attention being paid by the regulators, we probably would not have effective digital currencies. And the benefit to driving costs down for a lot of our transactions is what we're looking for. So um, I guess what I'm saying is I think, I think effective regulation in both of those areas would be welcome. Mm -hmm. Nepal, would you like to add anything there? With respect to what you asked? Um, either the rule of risk from regulation or we could also um, turn to other risks such as uh, high valuations in the, in the, the current um, climate. Yeah, look, we, we talked about the geopolitical. We talked about um, um, the, the regulatory environment. I think valuation is an interesting one. Uh, you know, we basically have a market that's uh, near its all-time highs, and we have not seen a pullback in the market of 5% or so in over 300 days. And so question is, are valuations stretched? 
Um, and I'll make a couple of observations around that. Um, you know, we talked earlier on about corporate earnings um, very much not just meeting expectations, but uh, being on solid footing. And if that continues to sustain itself, you're going to see the E in PE holding still. But I also think that when you look at the markets broadly, it probably merits uh, double clicking across sectors because the performance has not been um, even across sectors. We've all seen energy being hard hit in March of last year, and that sector had had recovered with uh, recovering the price of oil. But when you take a look at the long-term valuation of the sector, it is still trading at a discount to that. Similarly, in consumers, we've had a run-up in discretionary, but consumer staples are not as richly valued. And I can go on and on, whether it be in healthcare, we're obviously been a beneficiary, if you can, during the pandemic, uh, but we have seen a pullback in life sciences, biotech, and it is trading at a discount to the healthcare uh, index. What I would say is that when you think about um, long-term secular trends and we are in this multi-year digital transformation those trends are here to stay and the market opportunity around many sectors as well as companies are quite significant and in many of them we're at the very early innings and so got to think about valuations and that time horizon uh, interestingly our head of retail in japan made a, a very astute observation when it comes to thematic uh, investment and they said it is time, not timing that matters. So if you think about the broader opportunity uh, and you're willing to wait out the time, there's going to be incredible opportunity. So yeah, we do for some sort of a correction. I'm not the first one to go on record that say likely so. But the question is whether we're in a solid economic uh, environment, whether the corporations are doing well, what are the opportunities that we've all we've been talking about. I don't really see value, valuation to be kind of the primary risk factor, so to speak. But um, I will say that it does create a challenge for M&A activity, right? And to the extent you've had a run-up uh, in valuation of a target, it does make uh, the acquirer think about what are the, first of all, the industrial logic always has to be there, but the synergies need to make sense. And then you obviously have investors who are uh, the owners of that pro forma company that you need to think about. So valuation does become a factor as you're thinking about deal making activity. Have there been any recent uh, transactions or examples of an LBL or a SPAC that is new to market that you could point to as either particularly interesting or something that might point to where we could see uh, more of this? Well, I, I think that a, um, a SPAC is really a, a multi-dimensional, almost like a Rubik's cube. Uh, in and some of the parts are not complementary. Some of the parts are really um, not in conflict, but certainly in tension. And uh, there will be new responses if a component, for example, if uh, pipe investors are not seeing in the marketplace the opportunity to, or the advantage of, uh, 
the optionality that that investment uh, has, I'll say traditionally over the last seven to eight years, uh, provided them uh, the structure will have to be changed and the valuations will have to be changed in order to be responsive to that if one wants to continue to uh, have a format in which um, the uh, uh, capital raise is in excess of, of uh, the trust value. And that is in fact uh, probably a, a, a healthy thing and you begin to see it in terms of uh, uh, structures being uh, created which include uh, re uh, current return in addition to future return, uh, such as convertibles and discounts and all the rest of it. But it's all a matter of, of finding uh, the comfort zone for investment uh, for each of the parties, whether it be the the uh, company that is taking the pathway to the public market or the additional uh, pipe investor. Uh, they're really not at loggerheads, but they're trying to find within an area which has not been tested as long as the IPO and which may not have the level of uh, investor confidence yet that uh, is present in uh, other markets. Uh, they're testing out uh, ways to accommodate uh, and to return appropriate re uh, appropriate return uh, to the various parties in, in the transaction. It's a fluid, I think uh, Mikhail was saying that it's a fluid element and that uh, there's certainly sector rotation and other elements that are generally uh, accepted in the marketplace that come into play. Uh, but you'll see people reaching out for uh, uh, the solution to, uh, uh, to this conundrum. To pick up on what, as usual, Betsy hit the nail on the head. Um, and I think there's some you know, a bit of confusion because, you know, I can't tell you how often someone says to me, the pipe market's a mess. And I'm looking at it like there is so much money to be put to work for good companies at the right valuation. And one of the things I really like about our experience with SPACs is when you've identified the right company and you have a valuation, if you can't execute a pipe with large, sophisticated investors who, who love the pipe opportunity because they get to look at a specific opportunity where a sponsor that they trust has, has kind of already looked at it. They can meet with management. They can make their own decision. They don't have to say yes. If the valuation's right, they can put some serious money to work you know, at that level. And I think that that's a check on the valuation that's coming out, right? If you can't get a number of large, sophisticated investors to join the pipe, then your valuation is not going to happen and, and the DSPAC or whatever the phraseology is, is won't happen. Another thing I'd say about the importance of SPACs is we recently had a transaction where there was a very large um, asset management processing firm uh, that we had a large investment in our fund. We were a minority investment, uh, but the board 
hired two bulge bracket firms to do an IPO. The two bulge bracket firms said, okay, we're going to start the IPO process. And during that, they interviewed six SPACs to see if that would be better, including our own. Um, and ultimately, it was an outright sale to a large private equity firm and one of the sovereigns who was in. So you had all these opportunities, and that was tremendous price discovery, and they ended up getting a higher price than they had anticipated from the beginning. So I think, again, it comes back to my comment on the depth of the capital markets. And is there a hiccup in SPACs? Sure, there's a bit too much issuance. That doesn't mean we, we kind of close it down. Let's, let's continue to have that market evolve uh, and be a part of this big, deep capital markets in the U.S., which is of, of, of benefit. Yeah, uh, to pick up on Bob's uh, comments is that, you know, there's never been a more, I would say, robust time to consider um, capital raise debuting into the public markets or considering M&A. But I think the question is also, uh, what is the profile of the asset? What are the strategic and financing objectives of the company and where they are in their life cycle? And so if you are a company that has this brand name recognition where you don't need primary capital, direct listing may be a great opportunity. Or if you're looking for SPAC, as we just talked about, uh, a lot of opportunities. There's a new concept of SPAC offs where companies are baking off uh, SPACs one against each other. And then if you're a company that actually could benefit from being part of a broader platform, um, utilizing the resources, the brand name, the infrastructure for sales and marketing that a, a larger firm uh, can have, M&A is the right option for you. So I really do think that need to think about what exactly are you trying to accomplish. But uh, your question earlier about um, unique transactions, uh, when we talk about the M&A market, and we're kind of approaching record M&A volumes globally, I think we are north of $3 trillion of M&A volume, which I would say um, on an annualized basis, maybe even looking to surpass the record um, that we saw back in 2007. And that's not just acquisitions and add-ons and scaling up, I think an interesting aspect of M&A is actually structured M&A. And we've seen um, corporations um, looking and evaluating their portfolio, uh, whether independently or through pressure by investors, like uh, many that we have in the room here, and the questioning what is core and what's not core. And there is participation in these structured M&As, and I mean divestitures, spins, reverse Morris trusts, what have you. And there's participation by both corporations as well as sponsors. So I'll give you an example on one we have worked on. Um, we worked with Apollo on the acquisition of Verizon Media. That's the Yahoo AOL assets, which Apollo acquired for $5 billion. What's unique about that situation is that Verizon retained 10% stake in the company allowing them to participate in the upside of the company um, through an new ownership, while at the same time focusing on um, 
5G rollout and reliability of voice data and network, which are areas where they have articulated to uh, investors that they're going to be focusing on. Um, but then another one on, on, the, uh, on the corporate side, um, we saw Aircap acquiring assets out of GE Capital Aviation Services, $30 billion transaction, where there has been pressure on GE to focus on its industrial business, so to speak. And this combination enabled GE to actually retain um, 46, 7% of that combined entity. So I find these structured M&A transactions really interesting because they certainly allow for monetization of some of the assets while at the same time allowing corporations to then take the proceeds and apply them to investments in areas of their core business as well as capital return strategies, whether it be dividends, debt repayments, share buybacks, uh, et cetera. So we have about two minutes left. I wondered if I could do a quick question with each of the panelists. What do you watch the most right now because it interests you, be it a particular uh, financing type or company, bank, or um, industry sector? Could you um, tell the audience what you're, what you're really watching? Betsy, we'll start. What with. are we watching in terms of... Uh, uh, of the development of the SPAC market, is that what you're suggesting? I think that what we see is that uh, the market is, is emerging uh, into a much more differentiated market, that there are not sponsors, every sponsor being equal, but that there's the ability of investors to be able, and companies, to be able to distinguish among uh, sponsors who we think really represent the investors, unlike in an IPO in terms of um, uh, the larger banks, which are trying to get a deal to the market, uh, that the opportunity for uh, that kind of uh, distinguishing among uh, the players, as has emerged, is really one of the uh, trends that will stick. Mm -hmm. Bob, a quick. So I'm going to go back to Circle. We just announced um, our SPAC, Concord One, um, announced a merger with Circle. And this whole space of stable coins, digital currency, blockchain, internet. We've seen a lot of development in the retail side of technology and banking with PayPal and Stripe and so much on the consumer or retail side. On the commercial side, to do a large transaction, billions and billions of dollars from the UK to the US required a middleman, we required a bank or a credit card company or someone to stand in the middle. That's two or three points. And it happens Monday to Friday, nine to five at their discretion. Now, instantaneous, uh, any sizes, secure because of blockchain and because of the digital currency addition now driving the cost close to zero. So the ability to, to um, kind of compete with that soft underbelly of the commercial banks in treasury and transaction services gets me very, very excited. 
I know we've run out of time here. <laughs> I'll say in addition to the digital transformation, I think ESG and particularly around uh, sustainability, there's a lot of investment going into energy transition. So that's uh, not just in the power utilities, energy sectors, it really is across every industry, industrials, real estate, sustainable development and what have you. So that would be the second one. Great. Thank you all very much for sharing your insights and experience. Thank you, Janet.